My name is Jacob Stoops. And I'm Jeff Luella. And you're listening to the Page Two Podcast. This is our podcast about the people of the SEO industry. We chronicle the real life stories, experiences, challenges, and advice from some of the most amazing people in the business. This week's episode, we give you a double header as we talk to not one, but two amazing SEOs. We chat with Jamie Clark, head of SEO at The Wirecutter, and also with Christine Liang, director of SEO at The New York Times. We discuss our previously unknown digital marketing background crossover, and both Jamie and Christine talk about their SEO career journeys from working at different digital marketing agencies to previous experience in publishing, jumping in-house, biggest challenges, as well as what it's been like to lead the SEO strategy at the New York Times and the Wirecutter, respectively. For our core topic, we dive deep into publisher SEO and specifically what it's like to work on SEO for a massive news site, how to work with editorial teams, doing SEO at scale, handling SEO for sites with paywalls, as well as what it was like to migrate the wire cutter from a separate domain into a subfolder on the New York Times website. We also answered Twitter questions of the week and award some more Page 2 Podcast merch. So get your popcorn ready for this double feature as we tell Jamie and Christine's SEO stories and have another great roundtable discussion. Hey, everybody. This is Jacob Stoops, and we are back with episode number 69 of the Page 2 podcast. If you don't know me, I am an SEO director at Search Discovery, and I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Jeff Luella, technical SEO at The Wirecutter, a division of The New York Times. How's it going, Jeff? Hey, howdy, hey. It's going good. It is It is. Going well, probably in your world. This in, yeah. in my little uh, slice of heaven up here in Ohio. Um, I was a little worried that I wasn't going to be able to do this episode today because this episode requires my voice. And up until today, I have had no voice. Uh, I have come down and I've been a little bit under the weather during the week, but I made it back by Friday uh, just in time, time to record another episode and to head into into the weekend. What I will say is uh, I got my first COVID test uh, and I've been lucky, not, you know, knock on wood that I've not had to have a COVID test up until this point. Um, COVID negative, uh, you know, thank God. But uh, yeah, it is not a pleasant experience. No, my wife's been through it a few times um, just from kids in school or friends and neighbors that stop by that have it so i've been lucky that i just lock myself in my office and no one comes in here so yeah they stick that swab literally so far up your nose that like i don't know like i thought it was going to go right through my nose because they <laughs> got up in the, <laughs> there you go. in it the call, it's a tearjerker <laughs> yeah yeah definitely made my eyes water um so this episode is going to be a really really special episode so uh, Jeff, uh, you know, as, as always, Jeff has got, he's the man with all of the connections. Uh, and for this episode, uh, it's especially special because he has pulled from his amazing connections again. Uh, and he has gotten us not one, but two 
really amazing and special guest this time from his place of employment, the New York Times and the Wirecutter. And we are going to have both of our guests on at the same time. And in fact, I am going to introduce them and we're just going to we're just going to get right into it uh, and bring them on uh, right now because we have a lot to to talk about. So our two guests are going to be uh, Christine Liang, the director of SEO at the New York Times, and Jamie Clark, who is the head of SEO at Wirecutter. Uh, so welcome to our show, uh, Christine and Jamie. Hey, hey. Hello. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for I, having us. Yeah, I was actually expecting a chorus of hey, howdy, hey, because Jeff is like, oh, yeah. for those, for those <laughs> have, that have seen uh, Home Improvement back in the 90s, Jeff is like Al Borland. He's the Al Borland of, of this show. Yes. It's yes. how he starts all the meetings at work, too. So is that true? I'm used to it. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. The first question is, uh, how has uh, how has Jeff been uh, to work with uh, the last six or six Terrible. or eight months? How do you guys tolerate him? Jeff is a he's a total nightmare, as I'm sure you can imagine. No, I, I know from experience. <laughs> I, I've worked with Jeff for a long time. I know for experience from experience. Total nightmare. Uh, he's Jeff horrible. is, you know. <laughs> You are too nice, Jeff. It's that's probably going to be Jeff's downfall long term. I think he's too nice. <laughs> but no, seriously, Jeff has been one of the best people we brought on board, and we feel like so lucky in the way he's rounded out the wire cutter team, especially. Um, just more broadly, I feel like we've never at New York Times had such a in depth technical specialist in this way. So win-win on many fronts for us. I have always uh, described Jeff as kind of like a high powered laser and you just point the laser yes. in the right direction and it, and it works. <laughs> I, love I don't that. know if Jeff likes being described as a laser, but <laughs> that's how I describe him. Well, you know, I did buy a high powered laser to do laser engravings for our merch. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I, love no, it. I see it as a as a perfect uh, a perfect way to describe him. <laughs> cool. um, so we want to get a few things out of the way before we kind of jump into the the episode. Uh, so of course we have a YouTube channel. Uh, if you are a, a listener, we'd love you to jump over to YouTube. Maybe uh, watch us see our beautiful faces from from time to time. We are trying to grow that channel, uh, so please go over there, uh, uh, subscribe to our channel, like our videos, do all the things that the kids say. Um, the other thing that we want to talk about, of course, uh, is that the GoFundMe for Hamlet Batista has been going on for quite a while. Uh, we want to continue to promote it until the, the GoFundMe is taken down. Uh, it has raised over $63,000, which is an, ama an amazing, uh, you know, contribution from his friends, family, and the search community. The goal is 100000 Based on where it's at now, I don't necessarily know that uh, it is going to get all the way there, but uh, still, it is uh, definitely an amazing contribution. If you have the means uh, to donate and haven't already done so, please, uh, we would encourage you to donate. You can just search GoFundMe Hamlet Batista on Google and it will show. Um, the other way that you can help, because this is definitely his family's time of need, and even though $63,000 is definitely a lot of money, it cannot and will not ever replace the hole that's been left kind of right in the middle of that family. Uh, and, you know, the it, 
it's a great gift, but you know, missing Hamlet, you know, uh, missing a husband, missing a father, uh, you know, that that will never be replaced. But one of the other ways that you can support his family is by uh, visiting and maybe con- considering working with his company, uh, RankSense. So we've been talking about RankSense uh, a little bit. It's uh, RankSense.com. Uh, and RankSense is a really, really amazing, uh, amazing tool. And uh, Hamlet, uh, you know, he's been kind of big uh, in leading the the charge with uh, the Python community. And he's he, you know, is his entire career has been predicated around efficiency, automation and uh, making things easier to accomplish faster. Right. And rank sense kind of does that. So especially if you're on the agency side where implementation is a really, really challenging thing. Uh, RankSense could be a really good answer uh, to getting things implemented a lot more quickly. Uh, One of the tool's kind of core features is the fact that it runs on Cloudflare and you can make changes through the CDN out on the edge uh, without actually having to make changes to the source of your website. And RankSense will pull in data to tell you the incremental value of those changes so that you can then take that information back to your developers and say, see, this change worked. We need to build it into, into uh, you know, the actual website's framework and not just out on the edge. Uh, it is as simple as making changes in a Google Sheet. You can edit all kinds of really great on-page things ranging from page titles to even injecting on page content and structured data. They do have another tool that they're working on in in beta, uh, which is, uh, I I believe, a Python-based script uh, uh, combined with machine learning that will help you write uh, content at scale. So the way that it works is on a credit system, but you give them uh, a certain number of URLs, let's say a thousand URLs, they plug that into their tool and they use their their tool and the machine learning uh, to generate snippets of content based on your URLs content, small snippets uh, that are machine uh, machine generated uh, and they will write those in a couple of days, you know, the work that would take uh, an actual human probably two, three, four months, they can do, uh, you know, with a high degree of competency, uh, you know, in a very short amount of time. So huge efficiency play. Uh, If you haven't checked it out again, that's ranksense.com. The robots are taking over. The robots are taking over and Hamlet was uh, was leading them uh, and everybody would be doing him and his family and not just his family, but the people that are kind of left, uh, you know, to run his his company uh, and see it through, uh, you know, helping helping them kind of continue to push that company and that vision forward. Um, the other uh, the other organization that we want to promote and we won't do the entire live read uh, is uh, United Search. Uh, so if you're be, you're looking to become a speaker uh, and uh, you are from an underrepresented uh, underrepresented group, I can never pronounce that right. Uh, so you know BIPOC, LG, uh, LBGTQIA plus uh, women uh, over fifty five uh, plus. Uh, if you want to become a conference speaker, we all know that the climate of the SEO industry over the course of probably since the beginning of its of its existence has tended to lean towards middle-aged white male. And this organization uh, is is really geared towards making sure that there's more balance and fair representation uh, from, uh, you know, 
within the industry that leans back towards people that come from some of those underrepresented groups that have not uh, you know, had that kind of opportunity or exposure before. And that is something that is very near and dear to our heart. So uh, if you want to be a speaker and, and get your speaking career off the ground, if you want to be a mentor, uh, and you can also participate in this group as a mentor, just go to unitedsearch.org or visit them on Twitter at search underscore united. All right, so let's jump into, into the episode. So the thing that I did not know when kind of researching your backgrounds and talking, uh, talking with Jeff, uh, so both uh, Christine and Jamie have a very common background to myself and Jeff in the sense mm -hmm. that we've all worked at the same company from time to time. Uh, and it's funny that we've with the I've run into Jeff, but it's funny that we all I don't think ever really ran into each other. So, Christine, you worked with publicists. Jamie, you worked with uh, Rosetta, which became Razorfish. And Jeff and I both worked at those same places. And it's really crazy that we've never actually crossed paths. So how how is that? I, I think it's wild. <laughs> even yeah. Jeff and I at Rosetta, like we didn't even, um, we worked together briefly, but I, I want to say, how did this happen? That on paper, we all technically worked at the same place, but never crossed paths by acquisitions. Like mm -hmm. we essentially became part of the same company at different times, but I think SEO has just you know, it, especially in the big cities, I feel like anyone that was doing SEO in New York at some point, like we worked at the same place or we're at the same conference meeting. Um, it's weird. It's weird. I think also back in the day, you guys have, you know, especially Jeff has been doing this much longer. Like there were some beasts that were just like leading everything and Razorfish, for example, seemed to be one of those, um, so if you want to, you know, get in with like a bigger player that knew what they were doing, here we are. Yeah. So I guess, uh, Jamie, we'll start with, we'll start with you. Just take us through, through your career. Um, where did you start? How did you get into SEO? How did you, how, you know, how did you rise to kind of where you, where you are now, where you're leading SEO at the wire cutter? Um, so short answer of how I got into SEO is through an internship. Um, I know we're not here for like the two second answer, so I'll elaborate a little bit. Um, I, you know, I, I definitely was like a rebel in high school and there was a big question of like, what's going to happen to Jamie? Uh, my parents immigrants um you know moved here 1969 though so you know fully american now americanized um i really you know in college thought i just wanted to go to med school this is my way of like rectifying being this like you know hell child on my <laughs> to my parents part um i'm persian and in that culture it's very doctor lawyer so plus science analytics in that way were just like my strong suit. So I really, really thought I was going to go to med school. Um, I got my bachelor's chemistry, started working in a radiation oncology lab, 
before applying to medical school. So these very random paths came about um, when I figured out that probably wasn't for me long term as much as I wanted to appease my parents. Um, I decided to go back to school and study like international business and finance at NYU. And through that experience, met um, someone who was hiring at Rosetta looking for interns and link building. So I needed time to fill. I really only had classes like three days a week. And that was technically how it started. I thought, why not? So you start at Rosetta. Uh, and I remember what my start my start at Rosetta was like. I won't go in, into that, but it definitely, there was a lot of link building. It was a link building <laughs> machine. Um, it, and it was... It was a lot, uh, in a, and in my experience, a lot of tactics at that time that were not long for the world of, of SEO. Um, but I, what I will ask is, all right, uh, you know, you start at Rosetta as a link builder, and then where do you go from there? How do you progress? What's it like? What are your best stories? Yeah, so I think you got, you know, you got it right in that those days at Rosetta, we were doing like the shady heavy lifting work, um, going through spreadsheets with thousands and thousands of links, analyzing competitors, backlinks, directory submissions, templatized emails, all of all of that good stuff. Um, and I think the looking back on it, like the thing that makes agencies so great, right, is that like you have built out teams that touch on each part of SEO. Um, however, it became harder to cross cut teams, like to say, all right, I know link building now, like can I be in the content SEO team? Um, or can I just quickly shift into like SEO analysts? So my next jumps first to reprise, which was a smaller agency at that time, um, primarily was at the hell out of link building. Like I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, one of my friends from Rosetta had moved to reprise. He was like, Hey, we're hiring. Um, if you want to, you know, do more analyst and all of those things. Um, it was just like a natural step to move forward quicker and, and just learn more about the different pieces. Um, after the experience at reprise, which was, was great, essentially like the team was much smaller. So I was in that position of doing as much as humanly possible because like, you know, we were understaffed. Um, and then Razorfish just, just came along in a similar way, um, through actually the guy who hired me at Rosetta, um, and, and I really loved being able to touch on all of the parts of SEO versus just where I started, like in this link building hole. And then, you know, you worked at big agency, you worked yes. at smaller agency. What were like the biggest, biggest differences between the two? Um, I would probably say the variety of verticals. So immediately going to a bigger company like Razorfish, um, I got to work on a lot, you know, different things and with a broader group of people, um, obviously because they were better staffed. Um, I think the, 
I, I had never expected to go into publisher next and in-house always sounded nice. And like the thing that I felt like, you know, more senior people were always talking about is like the easier life instead of business development for an agency. Um, so I, I think while it's a good way to almost fast track, like SEO college is, is what I would call agency experience. Like you learn so much in such a short amount of time and you have so many other subject matter experts to learn from, um, where in-house you are the subject matter experts. Um, it's definitely, you know, swimming in a different lane in that way, but, um, both of them were really, really important in, in honing the skills that are most valuable for me today. And then eventually you decide to move on to the wire cutter. And how did that happen? Yeah, so um, the New York Times experience in general, like I I didn't even really want the job, but knew I wanted to leave Razorfish. So was like, you know, I might as well just start like interviewing and like practice with the New York Times. Um, so somehow I feel like it was the product of me really being at the right place at the right time. Um, and I think that my time at, at New York Times was very much a roller coaster in that like there were waves when search was the most important thing. And then no one gave a shit about search. <laughs> so um, our head of product at New York Times on acquisition, like I was lightly involved in the wire cutter acquisition. I was very intrigued, like, wow, they don't have an SEO and somehow they have 70% of their traffic from search. Like imagine if, if there was a strategy. So when our head of product moved to be the GM of wire cutter, he was like, Jamie, you have to go. You have to come to Wirecutter. Um, you know, world is your oyster, like search first. You can do whatever you want. Like we just want the strategy and we're ready to move where, you know, I was there. Like in New York Times, there's much more of like a mountain to climb at that moment in time. So you can get so much done at Wirecutter like in a year and you can always come back to New York Times. Um, so that was the motivation for moving to Wirecutter uh, from the like career perspective. And it was work from home. I had just gotten married. I was like, you know, I'm probably really going to regret like not taking this opportunity in the far future, knowing I want to have kids one day. So it checked a lot of boxes in that way and suddenly became a, like, why wouldn't you do this? What has been your biggest challenge throughout your your career uh, tough question yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's always challenges especially with in-house seo like you have to be up for challenging situations and i, I would probably say honing like the ability to bring people along is has really been the the piece that was a huge challenge for me um that i think i got a lot better at because like we are essentially internal consultants um you know for a very long time i didn't even have access to our cms so like it's all in the power of communication and convincing um so i i very quickly realized like in a different way than what we did with clients where you're convincing but like 
you're not really invested in the product. So like, did I really care if you didn't implement, you know, the like stack of paperwork that I like worked so hard on for three months? Not really. Um, so, so it's like a, it's a different type of experience when you're in-house to have to face the challenge of convincing people to do what you know is, you know, clearly the thing that will drive traffic when there's resistance all across the company. And le- last question, and then I want uh, Christine to, to jump in and tell her story. Um, who's been, you know, throughout your career, your biggest mentor? So I, wa- I this is a really hard one to, to name just one because I had such important mentors along the way in different shapes, forms, managers, non-managers. If I have to pick one, I think the most like profound mentor for me is probably Marshall Simmons. Um, So when I came on to New York Times, you know, even when I went to a conference and I was like, oh, where do you work? New York Times SEO. Oh, do you know Marshall? Do you know? And I was like, who the hell is this Marshall guy? I got to like figure this out. Um, but Marshall really, you know, he he stayed on as our consultant after like formally leaving New York Times to start his own thing. Um, he, he in many ways taught me about communicating SEO, bringing people along, saying things in a way that touches on what matters to the person you're trying to convince the most, plus just like career mentor and there's many layers, but yeah, if I had to name one person, it's it's definitely Marshall. Very excellent. So, Christine, you've been sitting there very patiently and, and quietly, and, and now it's your turn on the hot seat. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let Jeff kind of kind of take over. Jeff actually doesn't usually do the 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 interview thing, so this is gonna be new for for Jeff. So. This is a great well, we, challenge. We great challenge. Things on the fly. We'll, see how, we'll see how Jeff does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Christine, everything Jake just said. No, no, you answer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, All right. Cool. All right. So, yeah, just give us some of uh, your history. Like, how did you, you know, kind of start your career in SEO and move your way through? I know you've, you've worked for some huge agencies, hard to say, <laughs> and, uh, um, and working your way up into the publishing world. Yeah, I will say it started with Craigslist um, because nice. remember a time period where you could get jobs on Craigslist, actually oh, really reputable yeah. jobs. <laughs> um, but even before I get to the job portion, you know, I um, actually very similar to Jamie. I uh, have a degree in international business, and it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. But having parents, especially Asian parents, who are like, you know, you need to pick something that will like you know, get you far, you know, like that's applicable to many, many different fields. Like, so they were like, you need to stick to marketing. Marketing will allow you to do more. Um, You know, I went to, um, for high school, I actually trained in classical um, art. So I did painting and drawing and printmaking. And that was my day to day for four years. So at by junior year, they were like, all right, you had enough fun let's get down to business. And that's when I went to pursue marketing and international business as my degree. And then coming out of that, you know, like I said, Craigslist, uh, the place for internships and full-time jobs. Um, 
I applied to a gig at Everlast, if you guys know the boxing company. Um, it was my first intern. Well, it was my first internship. It was my second internship. But you know, at that point, they were really just looking for someone to do everything. You know, so they were like, you know, you're that young person. You you know digital marketing. <laughs> um, you might know this space. Uh, so they were, you know, they're very like legacy brand. So they weren't very savvy in the space yet. So it was like playing with Facebook, playing with Twitter, playing with email marketing. Um, dip my toes a little bit in uh you know just like just playing with their their online business like like how does um e-commerce really work so um that was my start and my first taste of like you know seeing a business from you know from many different angles of online marketing um that's what they used to call it <laughs> um and then i moved on to an uh, a company that actually you know, was the sole focus was SEM. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure if you guys have any SEM background, but I feel like that is usually the first, I guess, um, it was like the doorway into that world, the search world. Um, so from there, this company sold everything. It was very much like uh, Amazon, uh, I would say. They sold phones, razors, like everything under the sun. And I was in charge of a lot of PPC campaigns. Um, and I saw how brutal that this world can be in terms of just, you know, constantly having to change bids and, and all that. Um, and I think from there, I realized like, this is something that I, I don't really love doing, <laughs> um, but it really set up right the foundation, right? For my understanding of the search landscape. Um, so from there, I, you know, I got full exposure into SEM. And then from there, I was like, I really want to work in something that gives me a little bit more, you know, leeway. And, you know, again, back to my digital marketing roots uh, in terms of like what I studied, I wanted to see more of the world. So I went to Publicis after that. And at Publicis, again, you know, we were working on a variety of clients. So I got a lot of like, exposure in the sense of like working on different verticals like similar to jamie um but also all those all these clients have different needs so it wasn't always like they needed you know seo help and S sem help it was always defaulted to we need a search campaign we we are launching this this big initiative we just need traffic to the website for a specific amount of time right so it's like okay i can bid on those keywords that's easy it wasn't until a pharma client like landed on my on my on my lap, you know. Pharma was big business um, at, in the agency world. Yeah. So when you got to work on pharma, you're like, okay, you know, this this is a, a little cut in a little dry in the sense like there's only so much you can do. But this pharma client was very interesting in the sense that they didn't want to do paid search. They were like, pharma keywords are so expensive. We can use our money somewhere else. So they were like, hey, we really are curious, like what kind of plan can you put together if we actually pursued organic search and, and pursued it from like creating content to back this, this strategy. So I pretty much like mapped out search intent with specific landing pages and certain keywords. And from there, that really just pretty much, you know, like opened up my world in, in terms of SEO. So I was able to create these, you know, this program where they really were able to reinvest their dollars into something else that had more like a long-term impact. So they created very specific landing pages. 
and met, you know, met me with content. You know, they, they had their editors write all this content to support the keywords that we were trying to target from a search perspective. And then, yeah, it, it worked. Of course it worked. Right. So, um, they were able to save, save a lot of money. And, and from there, you know, I was able to really like sell in this program, which is like, okay, we can also do SEO here. Right. So that's when huge kind of came into my world. And I've always wanted to work at huge from the, from the minute I graduated, I knew that was an agency that I really wanted to pursue because it was sexy. They were making really cool, beautiful yeah. websites. They were working with some of, you know, the best clients or the best brands in the world. So I want to be a part of that. So I, I pitched them on it. I was like, they didn't really have an SEO department. They had a content strategy department. So I walked them through this, you know, this, this, all the projects that I worked on at Publicis. Um, and they loved what I had to say about how SEO feeds into content strategy. They kind of work together. You know, that's really a beautiful marriage of the two disciplines. And they were into it. So they, they gave me a chance. And from there, you know, we, we kind of did like a roadshow at the office. Uh, and what I mean by that is a roadshow with my boss where we really had to sell in the value of SEO. Because what was happening was we were building these beautiful websites but they weren't like they weren't discoverable at all in search so like why are the clients paying all this money to make this like gorgeous website and then like have nobody come to this website <laughs> so we did a little internal roadshow and just pretty much sold in the idea of like why you need a bacon seo into the scope it needs to be an essential piece of like of you know any any website build any website relaunch so that's how I really just like started to really owning SEO. And like, if it wasn't for my boss who like really made an effort to, you know, corral me and make me part of that pitching process, you know, and like see how much value like we could add, you know, it wasn't for him, you know, I don't know if I would really be here today. Um, so yeah, after huge, um, I'm sorry, actually before huge, you know, I got a, sorry, not even before huge, still at huge. Um, still a huge, I got to work on, um, one of the biggest clients, uh, you know, the client that every SEO person dreams to work on, which is Google. Um, I worked on, they had a marketing site called think with Google. It was a, a publication where they had case studies and marketing materials around, you know, different Google products. Um, how can you leverage like Google analytics or Google ads and all this. So it's like, it was kind of like a you know, they were promoting themselves on this platform, but also it was a good way to show, you know, results um, when they, you know, clients actually use their products. So I actually got to pair with their editorial team through this process. I got to get it really a sample of like, what does editorial look like within Think with Google? And that's where I really was able to work with this editorial team and make sure that what they had in the CMS was like fields that were necessary for SEO, right? Like SEO title, um, you know, uh, subheads, like really basic things. Yeah. And just being in that process, I was able to, you know, I really got that. Um, it was like, you know, my eyes like fully lit up, right? They were like, I was just so curious about the editorial world. And that's really what, it was like, I got bitten by the bug. So I, from there, I was like, I think I want to try 
my hand on publishing um, or the media world because it seems like something that like I really can apply some of the things I've learned through my career and and really help you know elevate the um, the news. Um, so I went into, I went to HuffPost and from HuffPost I I got here. So that is. That is my my full story. Thank you for joining me on that journey. <laughs> Can I just say how fucking ironic is it that Google ha- outsources their their SEO work to an agency, and you still have to have like the same types of conversations that we have with regular like clients, ranging from big to small, with Google. Like yeah. that is irony. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, similar to the you know like. Any other company where things are very siloed, right? So like it wasn't like their SEO team was talking to this specific product team, right? The things with Google product team. So you know they were kind of operating like many many companies within this larger company. Or so yeah, I know it, it was funny. I was like you know when I first got that that work landed on my table, I was just like, are you sure this is the Google <laughs> that, <laughs> that I've been you know monitoring and auditing? <laughs> so, yeah, so. You know, it was the best opportunity for me because it, right, like I said before, really opened my eyes to this world of SEO that I hadn't considered, which was editorial SEO. Yeah, I think Matt cuts at a time. There was these like ignite talks that were like five minute, like quick tech talks, and he did his whole five minutes about how he created an audit for all Google sites and. Most of them failed basic SEO stuff. So as him being like the liaison to SEOs was kind of showing like, look, we are a terrible company when it comes to SEO ourselves. <laughs> um, and these are all the things. And it was a lot of things like they didn't have title tags on pages or like things like that. So he built this rating and, and literally it was like a D minus overall for the company when it came to SEO. So I it, it's it. interesting they didn't build it from the inside. I mean, I'm sure they do now, um, mm-hmm. but by going through and, and hiring a company, you know, an agency to be able to do it is kind of ironic. So going from like a, you know, big agency world into publishing. Like, what were some of the things that you have run up against that are that are just kind of different? I mean, I guess saying being at HuffPost, um, you know, you're dealing with one website, right? Compared to dealing with 20 websites or, or whatever you were working with when you're at a big agency. Um, so what were some of those challenges of getting into, like going from like a whole bunch of websites to one that actually published probably 10 times more than any of your other websites put together? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so agency world, uh, you know, what was kind of great about that was like, you would get a scope of work and it would be like, okay, well, you're part of this, you know, initial process, you you just got to do the auditing. And then you have to like, from your audit, you got to give me a set of recommendations and prioritize those recommendations. Right. And then the job is done. <laughs> we would move on. And then unless like the client had like, you know, retainer, they sign on for retainer work. Um, usually it was just kind of a one and done, right? And then you move to the next client and then and then that was it. You would never see that client again. And it was just like, I hope they did what we recommended because, you know, Jamie's, like Jamie said, like we spent a ton of time making sure that we gave you the best recommendations that you could execute on it. So it was kind of nice in the sense that, hey, you know, like we did our job here. So now on to the next in, you know, moving internally to like a big publisher, 
Um, that's not the case, right? We cannot just say like, okay, right here, we're going to launch some things, uh, put these technical best practices in place, and then we can just like go do something else. No, the, the job is never done. Uh, there's always stuff to fix. Uh, so for being in this position, you know, we really have to make sure that we prioritize the biggest pieces of work, right, on, on the product roadmap. Um, this is, it wasn't something that was really available to us in the agency world, right? Because we were just external. We were we didn't really have a good sense of what those engineering teams looked like, um, you know, how silo they were. So now we're really part of the process, right? We we have to talk to different teams to see if there are any dependencies, right? We have to make sure we fold those kind of like limitations and walls into our, our product briefs, right? Like what are the pros and cons of everything that we do? So in a world like this, in, you know, working at a publisher, you really, it's, it's just so radically different. Like the, you know, you know, there's always, you know, people that you need to speak to and connect with. Um, there's always things that will run against what you're trying to do. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's really about like communicating that strategy across more product teams and getting, you know, that buy-in. Um, so yeah, for me, a lot of my job is actually just communicating. It's just making sure that everybody knows what is going on and that they understand the implications if they do it the other way. So yeah, that's that's more of my day-to-day than than anything else. The the soft skills, like they're so underrated uh, mm-hmm. and really like getting things pushed through to completion it is like you said, all about communicating the value more so than proving that you are a better technical SEO expert or that you know more. It's really about proving the value and convincing somebody, aka the client or the developers or the you know the internal product team, why they should displace something else from their roadmap and put this thing in. Right. Because, you know, when it comes to a roadmap, um, kind of like SEO, it's a bit of a zero sum game. Right. They, 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 you know, they come in and they have this entire roadmap usually completely built out and you have to displace something in order to get them to prioritize what you want them to work on. And they have to know that that is going to make them more money uh, or give them more conversions or, you know, whatever they're, you know, whatever they're going for. And it's just insane how much in our industry we spend so much time talking about like content, like nuts and bolts, technical nuts and bolts, uh, and very um, subject matter expertise driven things. And not that much time talking about the art of communication and literally making business cases and convincing people to do things. And it's really like, it's almost psychological uh in in trying to like figure that out sometimes well what you just said really really rings true yeah the whole selling it like it's like we're we're pitching these ideas to other teams all day long and uh, making a case for it and of course tying it back to you know whether it's you know driving more search traffic or more subscribers or more registrations you know so yeah, it's, it's, it can be a little daunting, but, um, but yes, I, I agree. This communication is not, it's not, um, I feel like we don't do a good job uh, saying that that is a, a skill that we should really like, you know, um, promote and also just, just also, you know, I, I would say 
it's, it's something that we, we don't talk enough about. Yeah. I agree. I think like knowing what to do is probably actually like less than half of the battle. Getting it done or getting people to do it is far more important, especially within house SEO, at least in my experience. And I just, I also would say like the relationship building is a huge piece too, which like seems obvious, but less surface level in that way, like getting people to trust you. And especially at a huge company like the New York Times where people move to different projects, like there's so many times where like, I've, I've had a winning story with someone in like a very small way that maybe the whole company didn't know about it, but then they moved on to another huge project and we're like, we need to talk to Jamie about SEO. Like this needs to be a, like, I saw this work on real estate or like something that was like, you would think much smaller in the grand scheme of things. So it, those two, like you can't, job done effectively without being able to communicate and build relationships like pretty simple and clear to me now on the other side of it but maybe it wasn't as clear when i started out yeah i think being from the agency side you you tend to you know you package everything up nicely and deliver it and just you know on your weekly calls Hey, have you guys had a chance to to work on that yet? And not knowing the insides of that other company of what it's taking, you're not under Jira, you don't know what they're competing against. Um, one of the the great things that I've you know learned to come here is being able to see that it's awesome because now I, I know where I kind of stand there, and you 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 have more at bats to like, hey, we're this is important. This is why it's important. And when you do win, be able to share those wins is, I think, really important and something I, I definitely have to improve on just because it's. We all want to win, right? <laughs> so if we could show even like the littlest things have done. And one of the great things about being at a, a site that gets like tons and tons and tons of traffic is those little wins add up. So like a little win might get you 10 million new visits to a page or to a site. And you're like, wow. Well, I mean, maybe overall to the billions that like New York Times gets, <laughs> that's not as much. But to some of my clients on the agency world, like we were trying to hit a hundred thousand visits, you know, and, and there's little, we would have to do bigger tweaks or, or bigger promotions and link building um, being at a, a large company, like where links aren't the problem at all. It might be, you know, there might be some cleanup or, or just like, or links pointing to broken pages or sections that are gone now. And how do we clean, like redirect those properly, but it, everything's internally, like you don't have to worry as much about those like that, that kind of, you already are the authority. You don't have to worry about building the authority at that point. You just have to worry about like not squandering the authority. <laughs> um, and we I've seen so many sites do that where they used to be the one that showed up in my feed every day. And then now it's like, I hardly see them or, or even go to them. And you know, not to call it the Huff post, but that was one that was always some reason coming across my feed. And I know this will get millions of visits, but it's like one of those ones that I, it's just, they don't seem to pop up as much. I don't know if it was, BuzzFeed's like nine, uh, nine cool things you can do at a Republican National Convention or something. <laughs> but it's, um, it's something that was weird that uh, like I, I don't see them as much now. I know they're still there. Maybe it's I've evolved um, now that I work at the Times. Like it is a lot of time stuff in my feeds. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's definitely when you look at like the overall like traffic things. Like um, I, I love the Times because everyone that I talk to who's kind of on the other side of the aisle comes to me and always like, oh, they're a failing company. 
It's like, what do you describe failing? Like, is it because newspapers aren't being delivered to you? Um, and that's actually one of the questions I have. And, and maybe when we get into more of the, the news and we can kind of transfer in there, but it's um, going from like a paper driven company to digital first type of company. Like what were some of the um, challenges that we had? Like what go like, paper was what the times was right now it's like going from a new york based company to worldwide news organization is explosive growth when it comes to online type of stuff what were some of the things that like working in that industry and still i mean you're still working there what were some of the the things that are are like like, help grow that traffic where we're not just like necessarily news anymore but we're we're actually way more and i know some of it's through acquisitions and and stuff like that like wire cutter um being like acquired but um there there's like a whole bunch of other things in there that i I don't even know if i'm privy to all the (laughs) the stuff into it um so what were some of the uh, the things that were like that helped new york times like just grow and that explosive growth yeah, Jamie, I feel like you should take this first since you started. <laughs> before sure, I can. Um, I like to say, oh my God. So being part of the newsroom's like digital transformation, if you will, I quite literally felt in some ways like I was bringing older people into the future. Like, I, I just think they were so used to the print paper and these lyrical headlines and essentially, like, if you have the print version and the headline is vague and awesome and artsy, like, you have an image right under it to, like, tell you more about the story. So, like, it was really a mind trip for them to really, like, understand, like, the idea that we're still we're humans creating content for humans but we have this machine like serving as the intermediary between us so anything i try to convince people to do is always you know increase readership from search like once i learned to call it increasing readership and like bring it back to we're talking about humans here people not like machines like google we're not doing this for google um things things you know really accelerated quickly uh, another thing is like when the paper like like one example was like if you're on the subway and you see someone reading the new york times like you know there's like something tied to that and and you probably think they have like a certain level of intelligence or x y or z so how do you do that in digital like how do you like wear the brand on your sleeve in that way and increasing this readership. So these were all like very unique challenges, but I think we realized like print has always been our bread and butter. It's not necessarily that's just like going away, but we really needed to talk about diversifying revenue streams and whether or not it was on like a very high level of dabbling in affiliate and acquiring wire cutter or even within wire cutter. And, And Jeff has seen some of these conversations as well, where it's like, we're way too reliant on Google and we're way too reliant on Amazon. And if any of those companies like had pulled out the rug from under us, we all would have been screwed. So like we really work actively to try to diversify revenue streams within, partner with other merchants so we're not so reliant on Amazon. So there's, there's a lot of like trickle down effect in that way of wanting to be like in a healthier, safer place. But there were like 
many, many things that had to change without losing like institutional things that make the brand so great and strong. Um, but there's no way we were going to be able to move forward unless, you know, like the old school people learned about digital and social and writing a tweet, writing a search friendly headline, like these very like simple things, if you will, um, were, were the only way we could start to get there. Yeah. But Christine, please start to talk about the New York Times of today since well, I mean, you lay down a lot of the groundwork, which is like, I didn't have to do a lot of that convincing and, and all that. So for me, by the time I came in, I came into 2019, you know, there was already a, you know, SEO team that was consisted of an editorial person and multiple SEO editors. Um, so, you know, this... I have this person, Claudio Cabrera, you probably have heard of him. He leads all the SEO editorial efforts and he is really pairing with the desk and talking to the desk and working with them on day to day to see like, you know, like what are those topic areas we really, really need to prioritize um, in order to gain that readership, right? In order to get our audience from search and, and make sure that those readers are, are getting to the New York Times, you know? so. On that part, on that side of the coin, you know, all that is taken care of. For me, I came in and it really was like technical SEO wasn't really looked at from by any product team. Um, it wasn't really owned by anyone. So we created a team, a sister team called the audience product team that supported the initiatives and the strategy work or, or strategy and vision work that came out of the audience team. Um, they really helped us execute on those bugs and fixes and things that we really wanted to just rebuild. Like, so for example, when I came in, we really focused on foundational elements that like were really bogging down our sites. So sitemaps and redirects and, and broken links, all those basic things that like weren't really being um, tackled by any specific product team. Uh, so now having this like dedicated team that was just owning all these like health metrics, really we were starting to put these things in place and put it in front of the product org, right? We were able to say like, hey, these are things that we are monitoring, we are benchmarking, we're reporting out on. So we're finally like had this baseline. Um, and now everybody's talking about crawls and everybody's like, you know, they're they're curious, right? They, they see crawl rate and crawl stats as, as one of the secondary metrics. Uh, so you know, we've come a very long way, and but it really was, you know, I, I, I owe a lot of it to, of course, Jamie and the people who are, who are here before me, um, but there's still a lot more work to be done. I often feel like I'm Sisyphus, like pushing that rock up the mountain and having it roll back on me. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's still a really good time. And, you know, I still, because it's such a big site, I find so many new things to work on every single day, but it comes back to prioritizing and selling it in again. So one question that I have, uh, because I, I feel like working for a publisher at this scale is, it's an, it's an amazing challenge, right? I mean, the New York Times literally has digital versions of articles from the 1800s, <laughs> literally. Um, I don't know how many of them get traffic. That would be you know, interesting to, to know. But when you're uh, a publisher, your site is continually getting larger, you're publishing. How, how many how many pieces of content do you think gets, get published every day on the New York Times? 
around 150 to 200. Yeah, that's times, you know, every day of the year. Jesus, that's a lot of a lot of content, right? It's an impossible amount of the velocity that that content is being produced is nearly impossible to keep up with, in in my opinion, as, as humans, right? So when you, you know, when you're dealing with an industry like ours that is heavily predicated on picking a a particular way, a query uh, that people search and then changing your content to match the intent of that query. But in your case, you can't really change the news, right? The news is the news. How do you approach an SEO strategy where you really can't change the news or you probably can't at least my assumption is that you can't do traditional things like insert this keyword here, insert that keyword there that you would traditionally think of as SEO tactics. How do you go about it? Uh, and and then how do you handle the scale? Yeah, certainly the news cycle plays a really important role in um, our overall search traffic. And, you know, 2020 was just an unprecedented year in terms of traffic, right? There was just so many news events. Um, So we knew this was coming in the sense of like, what is going to happen in 2021, right? When it's not going to be, you know, Trump's not in the White House, um, you know, with COVID, you know, we're 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 seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with COVID. So all these things, of course, impact our our approach and and also, you know, the projects that we want to work on for the half. So knowing all this, you know, we have to really think through like, okay, we're still going to optimize as many stories as possible. So and what I mean by that is like our SEO editorial team will work on a handful of stories right every single day. Um, they can't get to all 200 stories, but if they can get to more stories, you know, if they can touch more stories and optimize more headlines, that can really increase, you know, you know the amount of search page views we can see on, on a daily basis, right? So just increasing that number is, is, the, is a goal of ours. So getting more SEO editorial resources, something we hope to achieve in the next couple of months. Um, but in the meantime, how can we improve their workflow so so that they are less, you know, like bogged down by the clerical work that they have to do on a day-to-day basis. Like, you know, if they're spending so much time, like adding things to a spreadsheet and making sure that they added backlinks to this one URL, how can we improve that workflow and make sure that they aren't spending so much time just doing these little, you know, little things where they're just moving from tap to tap. So really trying to build tools to support them and improving their, their day-to-day because ultimately there are, are, they're our key clients. Right? They they are making sure that the traffic that we're that we're getting from search, right, is is you know the stories that they touch is optimized. Like it has the right SEO headline, it has the right keyword that the user is putting into search. So they're doing a lot of things at once. Um, so many tabs. So it really comes down to making sure that we can continue to build tools and 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 features to support them, so they can just get to more stories and actually do more strategic things. And then the second piece you were saying was about scale. Um, you know, like it goes, once again, I, I spoke about it, you know, in terms of like getting the SEO editors to, to touch more stories and being able to optimize more stories if we can actually improve their workflow. You know, you 
we do have a lot of pages on our site and oftentimes you know like we say we wonder you know how can we get google to crawl these pages faster right these newer pages to the fresh content and prioritize the fresh content i would say google is actually pretty good about it like you know i think they know that with a new site there are just so many pages that they have to crawl they themselves are trying to prioritize what is new and useful right and 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 what users are actually demanding right so based on search demand they want to push that content that is relevant to the user so for us you know we have things in place like the new site map we have um you know we have some rss feeds in the google news app um we have you know we we try to you know program the home page and our section fronts to really speak to those fresh stories because we know those pages are being crawled so frequently right so we are really trying to program our site in a way that like we want google to get to the new stuff and the important stuff so can we you know make sure that we are telling our editors to promote these things in the relevant areas on the site and and not make it hard for Google to find the content. So yeah. adding more backlinks and and surfacing it up in key critical areas on the site that gets a lot of crawls. So Google like publishing and Google News like there's, there's Google has all these different sections, right? And and news is one of the big um, big ones that, that they, you know, one of the biggest sites people go to for news these days um, because of just the ability to um, capture news from all different sources. But one of the other like areas where I tend to get my news are like through rich snippets or, or top stories, carousels and, and things like that. What are some of the things, um, and, and this is both Wirecutter and, and New York Times, like that we do to like help get those featured snippets or get those like top story carousels um, because it seems like that's where most people are getting their quick news as you're searching for something or you just pull up Google and like you're seeing the news pop up in there. So what are some of the things we do to, to help get, you know, the amount of rich snippets and, uh, you know, the different types of rich snippets that are out there? And, and I'd add Google Discover as well. Google Discover, yeah. Jake's getting some work done at his house. So there's a little sawing going on. <laughs> um, Jamie. Jamie, I feel like, I feel like, yeah, yeah you're a, a, a rich, a feature snippet queen. So <laughs> I was going to say, what do we do? We migrate to NewYorkTimes.com. Jack, yeah. very simple, like <laughs> simple answer. <laughs> it did no, work. But, um, I, I think like, yes, my biggest like story to tell on this is, is obviously migration. When I moved over, it was as clear as day. I was like, are you kidding me? Like we need to be a part of Google News. Like this is, this is actually ridiculous because the major events that were driving revenue like forget traffic let's just talk about revenue for the business even though they were a few times of the year were so important and so massive and we actually were not showing up at all on the day of because of those top stories carousel so i think like with wire cutter and in one way we found ourselves at a crossroads like hey listen either we're going to start writing about news every day so we're like an approved google news publisher and we're also going to start doing link building and i mean in the most like simple way like if you interview doctors or experts for a review when it publishes follow up with them and say like hey this thing published if you want to share it or whatever like and our editorial staff at that time was not willing to make that type of culture change so 
Migration at large was to ride on the domain authority of the New York Times, but also to have a more active, um, or I want to say, <laughs> easier way of being front and center when those top stories carousels surface that didn't require us to compromise our brand because we don't want to be like a CNET or a tech radar that writes about any like product, you know, rumor that comes out every day. Um, as far as other features, I mean, Jeff, you know, you're at the center of a lot of this work. I think Wirecutter is lucky that <laughs> while you're in it, we still feel like we move slow, but we've moved a, a little bit faster than NYT. So we can play around with structured data and really analyze like in, in the most competitive spaces, which with our content categories go across you know, like sleep, mattresses, even with the credit cards content, like these are areas that are so competitive with these micro sites that are only about this thing. Like what are the features that are really getting more real estate? We make sure we understand what we need to do to get there and prioritize our work accordingly. So like even the FAQs markup is something that like pretty game changing for us, but there, there are tons of things having the capacity to test into it would be like, would be something really to help us move quicker and prioritizing. And, and Jeff has really helped to, to try to move people and getting in board in that way that while it's not like the traditional AB test that you think of um, that we do otherwise, like this isn't something yeah. optimizely, um, but it's really important to understand in your space, your vertical, especially looking at NewYorkTimes.com at Broad, we probably have content that if you, like appears in every single type of rich result. Are we taking advantage of every opportunity? Probably not, to Christine's points. Like you have to prioritize and with a site as big as ours, like we can't, we can't do everything all the time. Um, but even the cooking team is doing a lot of work to just show up in more recipe cards and it's, it's everywhere. Like the opportunities for us are very plentiful. It's just about having the capacity to actually move on them at a certain time. I wanted to ask also, uh, before we close out this section on paywalls, right? Um, most traditional newspapers as they have moved online have, you know, to keep revenue streams coming in have had to move their content to paywall. Uh, just to stay viable. Um, and this isn't just the, the New York Times. This is a lot of publications, uh, big and small. Um, how do you guys handle that? And I guess maybe that's more of a New York Times question. I don't know if the wire cutter has a paywall or not, but I, you know that's got to be a tough one. Thankfully, we have multiple teams working on just marketing and subscription and paywalls. And you know, this team is dedicated to like really figuring out what is the ideal experience, right? Whether it's like, you know, a truncated paywall or versus a paywall with mostly creative or a paywall that, you know, has a, a little bit of like, it teases the content a little bit, right? They're constantly tweaking the creative and making sure that the experience that they're offering is not hindering the reader, right? It's not actually causing bounce rates uh, to go up. So they're looking at metrics across the board and we are now really pairing with them to look at these metrics to see how the bounce rate may impact rankings, right? We, we weren't doing those kind of activities before, but 
now that we know the paywall works, right? We know that people are, they really believe in the content. They really want quality content. They're willing to pay for it. They're willing to register. Now that we know that works, we, you know, we really want to make sure that as we roll out the paywall into more surfaces, right? We just rolled it out on AMP. Um, this, you know, we are making sure we monitor the metrics that we really care about on the search side so that we can relay back to this team um, that's actively working on the paywall uh, to make sure that actually it's not hurting it. And if it is hurting it, what can we do? What what are the fallback plans that, that we can put in place to make sure that the, the user is still getting the best experience? Um, so thankfully, yes, we have a, a really large team that's, that's you know, always working and refining this strategy. Um, but there's also structured data that's involved. So like the Google actually can see the data behind um, the paywall and still yeah. be able to crawl the content. Yeah, that's what I was gonna gonna ask is, is there anything you can do? Because I would assume if you all of a sudden have a paywall in place and you cut off most of the content from Google being able to see it as well as your your readers who have to then get behind, a you know, pay and get behind a login to see it. Um, I would anticipate that there would be some, you know, potentially pretty severe SEO ramifications if you don't follow, you know, what Google's best practices are for handling that content. So, so you're saying like structured data, uh, you know, if you're a publisher that has to deal with the paywall situation is, is kind of the critical, critical thing to kind of completing that cycle for Google to be able to access the content. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, a property type called is accessible for free or not. I think that's, that's the name of it. Um, so that, that is a good indicator, but we, you know, another piece of this is like we, we did, you know, because we were one of those, the first paywall publisher, uh, we really partnered with Google, right? We really wanted to get Google on the same page of, as us and make sure that this isn't something that was really going to mess up, you know, our, our ranking. So they were like, we were really, we worked in tandem with them to really make sure that what we were executing was sound for search. So let, before we move into the Twitter questions of the week, I just wanted to open it up, uh, you know, kind of parting words on massive scale, you know, news and publisher based SEO. Like, you know, if you had to say, give one piece of advice to other SEOs that are kind of working in a similar situation, what would you, what would you say to them? Okay, I'll go first. I'll say like, try it all. Like you should really, you know, get a sense of like what you like within the SEO space because there's so much out there. There's so many different avenues of SEO now that it isn't just strictly content and tech. Like, it, yeah, at this point, I would just say, you know, give it all a go and then you can kind of figure out what path makes sense for you. Um, I'm going to mirror what you said and that like to even looking back in, in my own experience, like there are so many things, so many parts of SEO, whether it's technical link building mentions, content, just authority, trust. Um, so from that perspective, like trying everything, there were things that I just didn't even know were going to make me so excited until I tried them. Um, and then for like publishers specifically as well, I, I would probably say, you know, this communications and 
relationship building is huge and just bringing people with you to say to to really have the voice of like we don't always have the answers but test this with us to help us figure out i found has just been so much more profound and meaningful versus like trying something getting someone to do something and feeling like you were wrong about it and like the trust doesn't get built in the same way because people even heavy editorial people are actually really excited about data even if like they didn't think they were going to be excited about data um so keeping more people in the conversation is basically what i think the the effective way is to get shit done yeah i think it's one of those where as much as i don't love link building there are people out there who love it that much and it's that's their niche that they found that they love and it's like just the thrill of you know reaching out and getting those and and stuff i mean i I understand it because it's the same way as when I discover something that's like blocking a crawler technically from going through the site. So like, what is your passion? And I think that's one of the things that you need to, to look for. So let's jump into Twitter questions. Um, so we have, I think five, I, I might uh, re- combine some because uh, some people ask like four different questions um, into one, which is great. Um, but we'll start off with Theodore Bigby at Theodore Bigby on Twitter. Uh, and this is kind of a, a quick one he has then like the longer version of it. But could you describe SEO strategy concisely enough to fit in a meta description that would be displayed on Google? Okay, I loved this one. I was like, this is a funny play on words too. <laughs> And, and found it really challenging. I was like, shit, wait, I don't think I can fit SEO strategy, like this explanation into 150 characters. Yep. But for for us, what's my elevator pitch of like in the, in the one minute, I, I say my role is to find pockets of growth because they are a plenty on our site, in our content, in our sections. But the goal of being strategic for us is is finding these pockets of growth that align with the business goals, hand raising if we need to shift our goals or like if there are opportunities to take advantage of that people aren't thinking about and then executing against those opportunities. So like obviously we have very robust team at Wirecutter and New York Times at large. But, you know, that when there's a million things to do, getting to the finish line and, and kind of chipping away at small wins and and the bigger picture um, is probably the biggest part of the day to day for me. That won't fit in a meta description. I know it won't. Well, I gave the long <laughs> answer. I, I did the like meta description. Yeah. First, right. <laughs> Uncovering growth opportunities and executing against them. That was more than 155 characters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I used to always, uh, being an SEO at large agencies, a lot of times I went last in presentations because all the sexy paid search stuff went first. So at the end of the day, I would just pull up someone's website. Um, One of my favorite ones was with Timberland. And I pulled it up and typed working boots in there and they weren't on the first page. And I was like, I can help you get there. And that was literally my presentation because I had two minutes left. And funny thing was they went with SEO and not with all the other like paid channels. Uh, just because of like that, I was easy to show them like you are not doing well and that's your main 
business. <laughs> so that's the, yeah, that, that's the ultimate mic drop right there. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was so easy because I had a whole presentation. I had no time to show it. People were getting up from their, their table because it was over. And I'm just like, look, you're not there. <laughs> so that was great. Um, that so, is the most effective screenshot, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. So uh, Elizabeth Leffelstein wrote, um, what level of priority do you guys place on international SEO? What are some of your biggest struggles to move the needle on international SEO and any tips for success in the area? Man, this has been my baby for the last half. Um, and it's actually one of the main um, areas of opportunity for us at the New York Times. So last half, um, international was, you know, we actually just started to get our toes wet in this space in terms of like, hey, we don't have good visibility in, in many international regions. You might be surprised. You might have this impression that we rank everywhere, but we absolutely do not. Um, we have great visibility in the U US, um, but in these international regions, especially local markets, right? There are other things, other algorithms and other ranking factors that play um, play a major role that we are we are just not aware of, right? Like every market is very different, right? Whatever, whether backlinks is more important than say a SEO headline, you know, we don't, we haven't really fully unpacked that. Um, so the last, last half, it was really focused on like, let's set up, let's do those fundamentals, right? Get back to the fundamentals of like, how can we set up the site in a way that Google recognizes us as a global pu publisher? So we actually launched two editions, uh, Canada edition and international edition, just so we can start like, I guess, seeding these signals that we are actually playing in this region. Um, because what we were really relying on was just one domain property, right? There was no subdirectories, no subdomains that really spoke to these um, individual regions. So we've done some foundational work to just get these pages set up. Um, and now we're really, really trying to invest more in say like content differentiation, um, adding more pages to these editions because right now they really just kind of act as like similar, con you know, similar pages to our current edition, the US edition that is. Um, so we are in that phase right now where we're looking for like you know, more opportunities within these editions. So that would be, you know, like, like I said, creating more pages like section fronts and all that um, to speak to these particular regions. Uh, yes, it is on our, our roadmap. Um, it nice. will continue to grow in this space because this is the, the kind of like the next horizon for us. You know, we want to dominate in these international regions. We want to be able to compete with the local publishers within those regions. What we're running against um, we're running against a lot of walls because, you know, Google also prioritizes local publishers within those regions. So, like, how can we start building that authority and equity within these regions? Like, it's going to take a lot. It's going to be an uphill battle because it's going to require a lot of a lot of muscle from different teams, including PR, because we're going to yeah. need those local backlinks. Yeah. And soon you're going to have to deal with Mars since we're colonizing there. So. Jesus, not ready for that yet. But. Yeah. Cool. So Wade Saunders is at Heels Four Corner. Uh, 
former colleague of mine, colleague of Jake's wrote. So his first question, it's kind of an inside joke, but it's, uh, and, and I haven't brought it up to you guys, I don't believe, but uh, has Jeff shared his poop score metrics with you, the Wirecutter team? So the poop score is the power of organic pages. And the higher the number, the more full of crap your page is. Um, so this is my <laughs> metric. I will one day succeed. And uh, it will pretty much be how scored on how many poop emojis your page gets. Um, <laughs> the inverse uh, of page, page rank. Yeah, it's it's kind of like page rank in a way, but it's uh, you know the power of organic pages, poop scores. So that's uh, I shared it with the world right now. So anyone wants to help me develop, I, I'll have to get some uh, smart people like J.R. Oaks or something to help me figure out that one. But <laughs> um, but his real question, where like uh, this one would be for Jamie, how beneficial was the shift of wire cutter from a separate domain to a subfolder in New York Times? And I, I kind of laugh because Patrick Stocks just wrote an article again about like subdomain versus uh, subfolder. And like, again, people like are all getting like fired up. And I was like, I, I witnessed a full domain to a subfolder and it worked out pretty well, I think. But, um, but that question I think was directed towards you, Jamie. Yes. So short answer, best decision we ever made. And I can't believe we didn't do it sooner. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's honestly been beneficial in more ways than just organic search, but from the search lens, um, that was something I was very clear about. I, I was like, hell no, there's no way this can go down unless we're a subfolder. Like, this is not even a discussion we're having. Don't look at cooking. Like, we are not taking that risk. Um, to be fair, cooking is like a fully different product experience where we are reporting on, on coverage in this in that manner, even though it's like commerce review content. So there, there are more lines to draw between a news site having a folder that covers shopping than cooking being on a separate subdomain. And, and cooking also has the dining section as like its sister section. So um, we, we were definitely going subfolder. Um, I would say I was most shocked about how quickly it was so beneficial. So I, I had worked on a few other migrations in the past, specifically at New York Times or even the Sweet Home folding into the wirecutter.com. Um, and I think this is definitely like a testament to Christine and how much she helped us in executing everything that day down to like, you know, robots text directives and just like, if there was a box to check, we did it and we did it so swiftly and quickly that morning. Um, so having everyone like working with us really made this really painless. And um, it, I think the the brand benefits, like the gains we've gotten from Google Discover just by virtue of being on the domain, like we never could have predicted the impact, but seeing the numbers, I mean, yes, best decision we ever made. Great. Um, so Brandon now I'm going to kind of reword his question a little bit differently, but in like a sea of SEO advice and content that's out there on the web, um, what are some of the you know areas where you get your information? Like the, um, you know, where is the true SEO information coming from? Are there any diamonds in the rough of like content that you're reading that maybe the average SEO is not? Oh, good one. Um, I always, so here are my go-tos and I'm sure 
everybody is like signed up to search engine land. But really, they're like so on top of it. Very short. This is just, you know, like he he has his, you know, he's able to like get a, a good read on what's happening in the SERPs, like any fluctuations, volatility, because yeah. he's he's monitoring Twitter and the conversations happening on Twitter and reporting back on that. So I that's my number one go to. But if you know you had a you know less popular sites, I would say you know SEO by the sea. Um, I would say, I mean, even Google's documentation now, like, you know, their entire site that they've set up yeah. for developers and, and that they completely rehauled is just like really robust. Now, the only uh, gripe I have about it is like some of the documentation, like from, you know, that they've added to it, um, from like way back when kind of contradicts with some of the newer, um, recommendations. So it's like. I think they still have some work to do, but I will say for the most part, it's a great hub to just really get a sense of like, you know, what are those best practices? How are the best practices changing? What are some of the beta features being rolled out? Right. So I would say, yeah, you turn to Google and even their office hours. They have those uh, office hours, um, those Google Hangouts. Yeah. Those have been really, you know, great for me. I throw in questions and they've been able to answer them. So very effective channel as well. And, and we all, and we all know deeper down your list, maybe even on page two, of course, is the page two podcast, of course. Yes. How could I forget? <laughs> um, so Mark Alves, um, who was a, a recent guest on our show, left a question uh, for both of you. And it was, do you leave all direct traffic as is, or do you try to reclassify it in some way, um, such as like length of page path or external signals? So I'm guessing when we're looking at analytics, like direct traffic, I am sure New York Times gets tons of not knowing your analytics, but a lot, a lot, a lot of direct traffic. Do you try to reclassify it to maybe different ways of like um, that they're, you know, so it just doesn't come under just direct. I think direct just such a, a wide open bucket that like there's people like you try to de or reclassify it a little bit to break down some of those. I mean, I could lightly touch on this because we don't have a sophisticated way and just really talk about direct as like a murky bag. And sometimes we'll try to unbox some of it. Like, you know, we've seen a lot of AMP fall in there recently. Um, there was a time where we mentioned dark social and then people from analytics were like, oh, direct equals dark social. And I was like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. That's not actually... The end of the day story, yes, it's a big part, but um, uh, we at Wirecutter, we don't really, we don't try to go into the details because we know there are murky details, but Christine probably has um, some more insight to add. No, similar perspective. Yeah, direct traffic has been something that we've fully, you know, like as my team, that is, I will say there is a separate data team that you know, is monitoring like our different referral channels. And yeah, so they are, they're the ones always reallocating, you know, traffic and how, how to like report out on this dark social. And, you know, so, even Google Discover now is being allocated into Google search. So like they, you know, there's a separate team that, that manages most of this, but we're not actively trying to go into like, you know, who are these people who are coming to our site directly i'm sure there are great insights there but we're not at that phase yet to actually break down that direct traffic and i'm of course super curious i'm always like wondering like 
or maybe there are users just coming to the homepage, there are users coming to section fronts directly. Like I want to know more about those users and how they engage, but now the main channel, the main avenue of how people get to our site is through articles and stories. And that's really how we really try to prioritize our time and efforts around, you know, optimizing those experiences. Cool. So now is the fun part where we try to pick a winner of the best question so that they can win some wonderful page two podcast merch. I have, um, la- I bought a laser, so I have been making the coasters with wooden coasters or slate coasters, but you can also um, grab yourself a t-shirt out of our store. Yep. T-shirts, um, hoodies, hood- masks. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, We'll go through the questions real quick just to see who we pick is going to be the winner. So we had Theodore Big B with um, describing SEO strategy within a meta description on Google. We had Elizabeth Leffelstein as um, what level of priority you place on international SEO. Wade Saunders on how beneficial was wire cutter shift from separate domain to subfolder. Uh, Brendan Na with um, finding those diamond in the rough um, articles or, or um, sites to read from and then mark alves um talking about direct traffic and do we try to um break that apart a little so jamie and christine used to get to pick who's the best question and i will even say that you can separate those questions and both pick a different one and they'll both win i didn't run that by the boss yet but i'll i mean (laughs) Having to hear Jamie go through that exercise of squeezing the strategy into the meta description, like, yeah. you know. <laughs> All right, wow. so Theodore. That gets was like one. mental gymnastics. <laughs> oh, it really was. I mean, so he was going to be my one, but I'm not going to take away from the crowd that you're willing to give out to, to you know, have nice. two winners here. Um, so I think I'm going to go with Brandon because that's a great question of like, there's so much to go through and who has time to like read tons of advice all the time. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go with Brandon and I'm also going to push for that nuzzle tool that you showed me to. Oh yeah. Nuzzle's great. Um, that was life-changing like it basically just for listeners who don't know about it it's an app that um gives you alerts on the things that your the people you follow on twitter have shared the most so it allows us like i feel like you lean on the community to say like oh my god everyone's sharing this article on blah 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 like i should actually read this thing um and i'm someone who only really follows seo people on twitter so yeah and and i will say mine closely aligns with um ran fishkin's spark toro trending um Sometimes yeah. things differ, but I think uh, he's getting doing something similar with his. Um, but he's doing it based off of the whole industry um, compared to Nuzzle does it off of know. like your, your yeah, which is more crafted towards you. So, Right. Excellent. So Theodore and Brandon, uh, we will be reaching out to you to uh, decide what, what Page 2 podcast swag you guys want us to send you. So uh, yeah, just... Uh, once you hear this, just know we'll be reaching out and you get some awesome uh, page two podcast swag. And what we would say for those winners, once you get your swag, we love it when people take pictures with our swag and post them to Twitter. Uh, 
yeah, just please, please do that. It's not like a hard and fast requirement, but uh, it's pretty cool to to see our swag kind of out there uh, in the world. I think Mark Alves, who is a, a multi-time winner, uh, wore it to his local supermarket uh, this weekend and kind of joked around, which was pretty, pretty fun. <laughs> pretty cool. Uh, all right. So Jamie and Christine, where can people find you? Or do you even want them to find you? <laughs> I don't like Market to be the new times. I'm yeah. hiding. No. Right. <laughs> I'm actively trying to be on page one. So <laughs> search yeah. results. So you can find me pretty easily. Um, I have a website or you can find me on Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm all over the place. <laughs> the Twitter handle, Jamie Ray, is where you can find me. Ray is my adorable Yorkie that I've had for 14 years. So um, that's where Jamie Ray comes from. But. He comes to our meetings often. He does. <laughs> He's a VIP, very important. Or VIG, very important dog. Yeah. <laughs> or VID, sorry. <laughs> Anyways, all right. So another great episode in the books. This was a, a bit of a double header episode, uh, which is awesome to add one more one more voice to the uh, to the room to balance out uh, Jeff and my own shenanigans. Uh, next week we've got Hannah Bryce, uh, formerly of the SEO SAS podcast. So. Uh, another great episode coming down the pipe, but I would say Christine and Jamie, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your stories. Thank you guys. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. This was a great time. Thank you so much for listening to the page two podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the show or listen to new episodes, visit us at page2podcast.fm. That's page, the number two, podcast.fm. Our episodes are also available on a number of other platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Breaker, Deezer, Overcast, CastBox, PocketCast, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Additionally, You can also listen and watch our show on our YouTube channel or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. If you'd like to get in touch with us, contact us at thepage2podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, happy optimizing.